Revelation 21, please. That's where we're going to be. The purity of the city and its temple. Now, our dispensational friends, and I have to, I just hate to keep having to mention that, but, um, you know, the book of Revelation is so popular in dispensational circles. I, I know of uh, two particular, well, not particular, but I know two dispensational churches that they're preaching through the book of Revelation, even as we speak. And, and I know it, it's very, very different than what we're doing. Uh, but, um, you know, may the Lord bless them. But to our dispensational friends, the main characters in Revelation are Israel and the Antichrist. You know, and um, really, I believe the main characters in Revelation are Christ and his church. So it makes for a big difference in, in how we're going to go about the book, you know. And um, so, so may the Lord help us. I, I believe that uh, we've, we've done uh, an adequate job trying to open it up and explain it. But it's not easy, is it? I'm not saying that it's easy. You know, it, it's a difficult book. But it's a book that should be able to be understood by the people that were sitting in the first century. Um, you know, one, one dispensational brother was talking about um, the Antichrist, and he was saying, you know, the Antichrist may not even be a person. What? Yeah. I wasn't talking about this, but he was saying it. He said, it may be AI, artificial intelligence. Well, I'm sure the people sitting in the congregation hearing the word were saying, you know, this Antichrist guy sounds like he's going to be artificial intelligence. Uh, okay, but they, they've got to be able to understand it, you know. So we can't be tossed about with every new thing that comes our way. The purity of the city and uh, its temple. Let me just read for you, if I can. I'm going to try. <laughs> so let me read for you. Um, Revelation 21. <clears throat> Revelation 21, starting in verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold as clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city was adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the third and the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, forgive my, my pronunciation of some of these, some of these I've never heard of, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth uh, chrysophase, the eleventh janeth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, I got that one, each of gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, I don't think we'll get to verse 24, but I'll just read the rest of it here. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring its glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there'll be no night there. They will bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does not, or anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I'm going real slow here, I know. I'm going slow on purpose, uh, because I really like it. And so I want to delve deep in it. And um, the older we get, uh, the little bit more about heaven we think about. And I'm sure some of you shake your head at that as you, 
uh, realize the, the greatness that awaits us, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the greatness that awaits us. And it's more precious to me than it really was 30 years ago. I loved it 30 years ago, but it means more. Uh, the older that we get, the more it means. And so let's just read the first four verses again. The long-awaited bride of Christ is revealed in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's what we're talking about, the new heaven and the new earth. 21.1. <clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so that's what we're talking about. Uh, the city is the bride, and it is the new heaven and the new earth. And uh, what we ought to see is Old Testament, New Testament saints coming together in the eternal state to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, back to verse 18 is where we begin our exposition here tonight. The first thing we see is the purity of the city. And remember, this city is pictured to us symbolically as a massive cube, massive and huge. And if you think about it, you'd say, and I had thought about this, especially in the past, I thought, wow, that, that's huge. And it is a cube, but that's a lot of empty space up above. Okay, well, that's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is how massive it is and the fact that the holy place, the most holy place was itself a cube. And so that's what we're talking about here. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ is now the most holy place because it's where God dwells. It's where God is in specificity. Now, verse 18 tells us the city is made of pure gold, um, so pure that it's clear, like glass. So I read a few places trying to say, well, wow, that's, I've never seen gold that's glass before. And some said, well, that's not possible because gold can't be made as clear as glass. And others said, oh, no, you can. If you, if you do it just right, and you heat it just right, and you pound it thin enough, you could actually make it transparent. I have no idea if that's true. I have no idea. I, I suspect, I, I'm not going to say what I suspect, but um, I don't even think that's the point. I don't even think that's what we should be thinking about. We're talking about purity. And it's not meant to be a scientific point. The point is purity. So think of glass. Now glass back in that day, well, we, we have very clear glass today. They, their glass was murky, you know, and it wasn't that clear. But the idea is purity. And so it's gold like glass. You'd be able to see imperfections if there were any imperfections, but there are no imperfections in this pure, purified city. Now, admittedly, the church on earth has imperfections. Each one of us helped to make it a little more imperfect, you know, but nonetheless, you know, God dwells with us and God loves us. 
And uh, we deal with these imperfections by repentance. And when necessary, we deal with these imperfections by church discipline. Uh, that's not necessary in the new heaven and new earth. Okay? There are no imperfections. There is no repentance. And there is no discipline. It's the souls of just men made perfect. That's what we're talking about. And um, you can turn there if you want to, but maybe, maybe just listen. Hebrews chapter 12. Let me read Hebrews 12, starting in verse 22. The Hebrew writer says, But you are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaks better things than that of Abel. Okay, so that's a picture of what we're talking about here. And um, turn, turn here, if you would. Turn to Job 23. Job 23. Let's remember this is symbolism. And what is being shown is the work of Christ in forgiving our sin and imputing his righteousness and the fact that he's made us absolutely pure to stand before God the bride is pure because Christ made the bride to be pure. Now we go back to probably the, the historically, uh, after the first parts of Genesis, uh, some think that Job may have been a contemporary with Abraham. Can't prove that, but some believe that to be true. And so Job 23, verse 8, you know all that's happened to Job. And Job's in the middle of his trial right now in chapter 23. And this is what he says in verse 8. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. As if God didn't exist. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he's working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Has that ever happened to you? Has it ever seemed like God wasn't there? Have you ever prayed and it seemed like no one was listening? Yeah, that can happen to us. And certainly in the troubles that Job was in, you could see why he would say that. But he doesn't stop there. But I know the way that I take. But he, sorry, he knows the way that I take. When he's tried me, I shall come out as gold. Now we're talking about purity, aren't we? When he's tried me, I'll come out like as gold. My foot is held fast to his steps. I've kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food, you know. And that's an amazing statement. When he's tried me, I shall come out as gold. And he's saying that in the midst of a worse trial than I'm sure any of us have ever faced. But that's what he says. And may God bless, you know. So the church on earth has, and we are, to a lesser extent than most of our brethren that have gone before and even live in the world today, going through affliction. The furnace of sanctification turns into glorification. And when we get to heaven, we'll be pure, spotless, without blame. And when our souls are united with our bodies in the new heaven and new earth, we will live in perfection without sin forever. That's the glory that we're talking about here in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, Augustine made this comment about sin, and it's paraphrased. He said it in Latin, so we couldn't do anything but paraphrase it. 
But uh, he talk, says, in the garden, man was able not to sin. Okay. After the fall, man was not able to not sin. Double negative, but hey, we're not grammarians here. Okay, you're not going to criticize Augustine, are you, Linda? <laughs> no, no, of course not. So after the fall, man was not able to not sin. But then, third, by Christ's death and resurrection, Christians are able to sin and able not to sin. The state that we're in today. Okay. And then fourth of all in heaven, we are not able to sin. Now, that's pretty cool when you think about it. Because um, as a teenager and, and as a young man standing for the ministry, with a little bit different perspective of things than I have today, uh, I remember thinking, you know, long ago there was a rebellion in heaven. And a third of the angels fell, I said. So how do we know that there's not going to be another rebellion? And how are we going to keep ourselves from being part of that rebellion and being cast out of the new heavens or being cast out of heaven? And I actually wondered that and, and thought about it, you know, uh, quite a bit. So much so I still remember it, you know. Well, the fact of the matter is, in heaven, we are not able to sin. We can't. We won't want to, and we won't be able to, you know. Spurgeon story. There's a thousand Spurgeon stories. No, I underestimate. There's a lot more than that. <laughs> okay. But here's a Spurgeon story for you. Um, you know, and then he was preaching on this very fact. Uh, about, um, about the fact that we are still sinners, that we still sin, even though we hate sin, we still do it. And he was talking about himself, he does it too. And, and he was just going on and on like that. And a lady came up to him afterwards uh, and said, um, Mr. Spurgeon, I, I have a bone to pick with you, basically. He said, you know, you said that, um, that uh, we cannot be sinlessly perfect in this world, and yet uh, I have not sinned in 20 years. And Mr. Spurgeon said, well, you must be pretty proud of that. She says, well, I am. <laughs> so I don't know if that really happened or not, but that's the story that they tell. Let's tell a lot of stories about Spurgeon. So there you go. But anyway, able not to sin. That's our state today because we're no longer slaves to sin, and we'll deal with that in Romans 6. But a contemporary theologian, Zach Howard, said this, quote, the presence of sin has not disappeared. This is the present experience of saints who still sin. We are still able to sin and now able not to sin. Because of the frustrating reality of ongoing sin, and he could have actually put Romans 7 in there, but uh, we digress, he didn't. We groan with anticipation, he did put Romans 8, for the day when we'll be gloriously not able to sin, non passe peccare. We hope in that day when we will see Christ face to face and when these things will all be made new. And then another quote, and I'm not sure where this one came from. I said Augustine, but I'm sure it's not Augustine. It doesn't sound like Augustine. A little too modern. Although we are able not to sin, sin still plagues us. Scripture gives no promise of sinlessness in this life. In fact, it says just the opposite. 1 John 1.8. What does 1 John 1.8 say? It says, 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10 says, uh, we make God a liar. If we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. I think that's a sin. <laughs> okay, absolutely, that's a sin. So, you know, um, it goes on. We're never promised a total, absolute victory over sin. You know, what we're promised is that we're made new in Christ, and we stand perfect before him because of imputation. The renewal we experience in our life, which is sanctification, is a foretaste of future glorification. We will win battles against sin in this life, but we should not expect to win the war. We have the ability not to sin, but not the ability to eradicate sin. Our ability comes in the fight against sin. This is incomplete until Christ comes again. So like I said, I can't attribute that quote because I wrote it down wrong and said it was Augustine. I'm sure it's not. Okay. Or else it's really Augustine so paraphrased that it doesn't sound like Augustine. Anyway, the church in heaven. Presently, the saints are at rest. And the new heaven and new earth, we will not be able to sin. We don't need to worry about a future insurrection. Don't have to worry that we'll take part in, in an uprising. Uh, no, that's not going to happen. So Thomas Boston actually goes into great detail about this in his book, Man in His Fourfold State. How many of you read Man in His Fourfold State? Good. Okay. I see that hand. <laughs> okay. Very good. Excellent book, isn't it? Excellent book, yeah. The Massive Cube of the city that's pure gold, and all in it are perfectly holy. Now the jewels. I won't trouble you to read them again. <laughs> you know? So just remember there was 12 of them. And uh, remember we saw the foundation was the 12 apostles. But there is a unity between Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. And so, you know, the, we talked about it this morning. The high priest of Israel wrote an ephod, 12 jewels, one for each of the 12 tribes when he entered the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. But the point here, I don't think, with the enumeration of 12 jewels, is to try to figure out, oh, look at that. There's the, the high priest's ephod, and uh, there's 12 jewels there, and then here's 12 jewels of the wall of the city. No, that, that's, it's not going to work for one thing, because eight of the 12 are, are represented, and... Um, I don't think that's even the point. I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing. More likely, we're supposed to point back to the much greater significance and beauty of the full atonement that we have in Christ. That, that's where we should be pointing with the 12, uh, 12 jewels in the wall. Not a day of atonement, the full atonement. Max Donner takes us to Isaiah 54. I'd want to take you there too. So turn to Isaiah 54. And this is possibly what the Holy Spirit is pointing to in the Old Testament with these 12 jewels in the wall. So Isaiah 54, and um, I give Max credit, my friend Max, credit for this because he's the one that, that uh, pointed it out. I probably wouldn't have seen it without, without his pointing it out. Isaiah 54, verse number 10. We'll start reading verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. 
When will the mountains be removed? Okay, the last day. We've seen that a few times in our exposition of Revelation. But the promise is, is love will not depart from us. God's covenant of peace will not be removed. That's the new covenant. Verse 11, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. And that was the condition of, of Israel in Isaiah's day. Tumultuous times. They did have some good times in Isaiah's day. Hezekiah came during that time. Uh, but there were some very great difficulties too. Well, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, we find ourselves sometimes in that condition in this world with so much sin, so much sin in the world, so much sin in the church, so much sin in ourselves. But what does he say? Behold, I'll set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I'll make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. And the point being made in the Old Testament, and now in the book of Revelation, uh, in chapter 21, is that in the new heaven and new earth we'll experience peace, righteousness, and protection. And that eternal state, perfect peace, with God as our God, and we as people, Perfect righteousness, not our own, but that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And perfect perfection, or sorry, perfect protection. Nothing can harm us. All the harm that could come from the very wrath of God himself has been taken away by the work of Christ. And all those things are figuratively outside the city. I say figuratively outside the city because literally they're in the lake of fire. Twelve pearl gates, verse 21. Twelve pearl gates. Even the gates are pure. They're also identical. North, south, east, west. Twelve of them. Uh, three on each side. You know, All twelve gates made of the same material, pearl. And every gate will equally grant you access to the city. Because there's only one way. Isn't that interesting? North, south, east, west. Yet there's only one way. It's purity. You know, streets of gold. Think about that. One way of salvation for all, but um, as we go here, the section ends as it begins in verse 21 with purity. You know, streets can be pretty when they're freshly paved in our day. Doesn't take them long to get dirty. You know, it doesn't take long. And uh, in the Bible days, the streets were dirt, usually until Rome came along, and um, muddy and dusty. And we see, you know, Christ and his disciples coming in and having their feet washed uh, for that reason for the dust and everything like that. Well, even the soles of our feet will tread on areas that are pure. And it's a picture of the glorified church. And talking about the way, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The Greek word way is hadas, and uh, it means road. So think of streets of gold that way, and he is the only way of salvation. Verse 22, a little bit different subject. We move on a little bit from here with a new paragraph. 
And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Okay. So the temple has always been the center of Jewish worship. Revelation would have been written either right before the destruction of the temple, with the destruction of the temple in mind, or some say as much as 25 years after the destruction. Either way, look what happened to the Jewish worship without a temple. There was no longer a legitimate day of atonement with animal sacrifices. It was done away, done away by God. And the Jewish religion became a religion without salvation. They rejected Christ. They could no longer fulfill the animal sacrifices because God himself caused the temple to be destroyed. And so why would you need a literal temple when you're in the presence of the true temple. Okay? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we said last week, the Old Testament temple was the one place on earth where God displayed his special presence. In this new covenant age, God's presence is specially with us wherever there is a true local church preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We undervalue the church. We undervalue it. We see it as weak. We see it as ineffective. You know, I've been part of the Church of Jesus Christ um, since I was about 11 years old. I devoted my life to studying full-time for the gospel ministry since 1974 and ministered in this church even though the location was different we merged two churches since 1978 and um, making my living primarily by the church since 1980 although there have been many times I've had to work part-time to supplement um, but this is where my heart has been and is and I was ordained in well I was ordained October 10th, just a little bit ago, in 1982. All that being said and done, the reason I tell you all of that isn't to say how great I am, because I'm not great at all. But the reason I tell you all that is um, I think I have undervalued the church. Even though I basically give my life to the church, I've undervalued it and not realized how important it is. Sometimes people will come here and, uh, you know, but during the week they'll come and they'll want to see the building. They're interested in it for various reasons. Sometimes they want to rent it. Sometimes they're looking for a place to worship. Sometimes they're just um, actually part of another church. They want to see how a metal building works out or whatever. There's a lot of things that, that uh, cause people to come here. And, um, you know, so I show them around the whole facility. I like to do that, actually. I like to, to show the buildings off. I know they're not fancy, but uh, I love them, and I think they're great. And uh, usually they're not all that impressed, to be honest with you. They're not that impressed with us until I show them the inside of this building. And then almost invariably they go, oh, you have such a nice little church here. And they always say little. <laughs> I've never, you know, and I, okay. And I don't take offense at that because we're not big, you know. Um, you have such a nice little church here. They, they, they really like it inside here. In fact, one person was taking pictures all over because they wanted to see what they could do to, in their own facility to, to emulate it a little bit, which was nice, you know. 
Well, it's easy to forget. Not absolutely forget, but undervalue just how valuable, eternally valuable, the Lord's days are when we come together. And it's not because of the buildings or the property and thank the Lord for them. It's because of the people that God has put together here. And we probably won't fully grasp it until we're with the church triumphant in glory. And then we'll understand better. But sometimes we get little glimpses. We got, we got friends all over the United States. We got friends all over the world. Todd Hurst was here. Uh, he's been in Pennsylvania for a number of years. And now he's in Italy. And he's ministering to the Lord in the ways that he can in Italy. And he was a vital part of this church here. So these are the things that happen. They encourage us to see these little glimpses of things that happen like that. But you know, when we're in the new heaven and the new earth, I think we'll come to fully realize the great privileges we've been given to be in God's presence among his people week after week after week and to be in each other's lives even day after day. So, you know, it's better than we think is what I'm trying to say. It's better than we think. And I'm going to close with this last verse here. Verse 23. Um, verse 23 says, The city has no need, it, there's no temple there, as we've said, because um, God Almighty are its temple and the Lamb, and God meets with us. This is, God doesn't meet in a temple anywhere in this world anymore. He meets with his churches, you know. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You know, we, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay. Now, I'm going to turn you to one more passage. This is the last one. Isaiah chapter 60. Look at Isaiah chapter 60. It's not surprising that the book of Isaiah has so much to say about the new covenant throughout the entire prophecy but especially once you get to chapter 40, of what we call chapter 40 and on, uh, it's, it's about the new covenant. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the work of the coming Messiah. Okay. It's kind of like the New Testament and the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 60, and um, without criticizing any other view, let me just give you a positive view of Isaiah 60 starting in, in verse number 19. Not being critical of any other view, just trying to lay out for you a proper view of it, I think. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. That's actually the, almost the wording of, of um, where we've been. For the glory of God gives its light, and to its lamp, its lamp is the lamp. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of morning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. And that is the true eternal state. But it doesn't mean the sun and moon no longer exist. Uh, there's still a heaven and still an earth, and there's every reason to believe the creation that existed when man was planted in Eden, 
will be very, very similar and very much like where we will live in a universe one day. But the sun isn't needed. God illuminates the world with his glory. This could be taken literally, but there certainly is a spiritual dimension to it in verse 19. And this is not just in the eternal state. Spiritually, it's true for us today as the children of God. And you say, well, I don't see any bright light, you know. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. And spiritually, that's true now, you know. Some scriptures, I'll just read them to you. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 12, 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. Ephesians 5, 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Or 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So we need to see the spiritual nature of it now, and a more literal fulfillment then, but the main meaning will still be spiritual even then. So just to wrap up Isaiah 60 again, the last part of verse 20, the Lord will be your everlasting light, walk in the light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. He's our comfort today. One day every tear will be dried, no more sorrow, pain, or death. And then verse 21 says, your people shall all be righteous, and we are righteous today through Jesus Christ, and we will be righteous through Jesus Christ forever, but then we'll be without sin. They shall possess the land forever. There's a big stumbling block for people because they just can't help but think of that um, piece of dirt over in the Middle East. Can't help with that. Our mind just works that way, okay? I'll possess the land forever. But he's not talking about that small piece of dirt that's been the object of so many wars and, and even still is, you know, that's present day Israel. Possessing the land is possessing the true promised land, the land that Abraham looked forward to possessing. The land that we are going toward, our true home, our eternal home, the one that's perfectly fitted for us. You know, I, I really do find Revelation more exciting than it ever used to be. That's why I've slowed down so much. I know I've slowed down tremendously. Deal with two, three, four, five verses at a time. But, you know, I don't want to leave it. <laughs> I tell you the truth, I just want to keep on going uh, with where we're going. And I think I understand what it's about a whole lot more than I used to. So that's why I've slowed down. It's the glory of the church today. It's the glory of God among his gathered people forever. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we live in the now. But Father, we need to also live in the future. We need to look to where we're going. Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress was doing exactly that. Christian, as he became known, walking on the path, he was heading for a destination. 
And every one of us are heading for a destination. When you're 20, that's maybe a little hard to understand, although you may end up there much quicker than you think. 30, 40, 50, these things start to become more of a reality. 60, and finally, Lord, there comes a point that I've seen it happen over and over again with saints, where they begin to see the things of this world grow dim and long for a better day. Father, when you allow us that kind of old age and comfort, it's actually a good thing. It's a glorious thing. Help us not to despise that. So Lord, whatever your purpose is for any individual one of us, we know what your purpose is for the church. And your purpose is heading us towards a great, unimaginable eternity that is better than any of us could imagine. And we thank you for that. May Jesus Christ be praised. In his name, amen.